For the entirety of my involvement in public life or in just paying attention to civics in the world, I have despised the phrase, you're on the wrong side of history. I have a new response I want to give you to that. But I have a question about our sexual ethic and where it's headed on this week's Corey Act Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be I said it on an episode within the last few months that every slippery slope argument I ever made and folks on my ideological side and even in my faith group, every slippery slope argument we've made about sexuality and marriage has been proven true the last 25 or 30 years. And unfortunately and also frighteningly, that continues to be true in a way that I didn't see and I want to explore where we're headed next with our collective sexual ethic. We'll start there in just a minute. You're listening to The Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Thank you for being here. You can find me, Corey Truax, wherever you're on social media, if you're on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for my weird name, Corey Truax. You can also email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. And that final thing I want to tell you is I get to serve as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville, and you are invited. Speaking of people who wrote into the show, Tiffany wrote in just to say thank you about my, a recent some recent thoughts I had about mental health and trying to meld the very good thing, the the good field that is mental health, but recognizing that it's going to be incomplete without actually re- coming from a biblical worldview. So Tiffany wrote in just to say thanks. You can do that. And I also, I might try to play this on an upcoming show. I found out I have a listener in the Philippines who does ministry over there. And so hi to Eugene and to Sarah. Thanks for listening all the way across the world with uh, with that ministry that they're doing there. And I hope to uh, play some of that audio and maybe tell you about that ministry here in the future. But we got to start here. The first argument made decades ago about our sexual ethic was the normalization of divorce. None of you, if you're not 20 years older than me, 30 years older than me, you may not remember this, but one of the tropes inside, especially Christian media, was that with this divorce rate going up, what we're just admitting as a culture is that it's just going to be normal that people have more than one sexual partner. Now, I know right now in this world, where almost no one goes through life with one sexual partner, that the idea that that world existed 50, 60 years ago, it's it's mind-boggling. The, the, the reality is that world largely exists in lots of places on the planet still in different cultures, but the West has decided that going through life with multiple sexual partners is a very normal thing. And it actually started back with mass divorce, when divorce became normalized. And those folks who argued that when we decouple the idea of one one partner for sexuality your entire life, we decouple that from marriage, it's going to lead to promiscuity. People are going to see sex, the actual act of sex as less special and important, and it's just going to be a, a promiscuous culture. I'm not saying it's a one-to-one correlation, but there definitely is correlation that mass divorce led to a sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s where we just decided the sexual act was nothing in particular special and it should be practiced by any uh, by any consenting people. There was an argument back then that if we're going to decouple 
sex itself from marriage and then act like it's not it's not a big deal at all, well, we're going to end up getting just a, a mass normalization of what used to be called deviant behavior, which is still called sinful behavior, and that is homosexuality. And obviously, that's where we are. There's about 4% of the country actually claims to be a an, an actual LGB, well, actually, I guess that's LG, just the L and the G. The L's and the G's. But they're represented, it's like 25% of all TV characters. And you are not just weird if you think homosexuality is sinful and immoral. You're actually, you are the immoral one now. The ethic has so switched that I'm a bad person. I'm the bad guy for holding to the biblical sexual ethic. And so as we kept making these arguments, they continued to be true. The, the slippery slope of sex itself and what the culture finds acceptable continued to deteriorate. And I know that the next thing we argued was polyamory. Once we decide homosexuality is normal, we're going to, immoral, we're going to go to polyamory. People will be, it may be in marriages or in relationships with multiple people. And you started seeing some of that. There was the uh, Sister Wives show. Like some of that was happening. And here's where we are now that disturbs me. I always argued, and so did most every other person I respected, that the final thing, after polyamory, the final thing, you're going to start getting people trying to normalize bestiality. That's the last one. That, that, that's really where we get to the bottom. And I think we thought that was the last one because we couldn't have imagined, I know I didn't, that we would ever come into a situation in the West, in the Western world, in the United States, that people started talking about children sexually. But here's what I'm seeing in our gender madness. There's no coherent answer to this question if we're living in the current gender madness of the radical left. If a nine-year-old can of their own cognizance and volition. If they can choose to switch from male to female, for that matter, for that Disney executive on that one Zoom call who said she had two children, one who was pansexual and one transgender, two kids under 10, one of them says they're pansexual. That's a social contagion, by the way. That's abuse by the mother, putting that into their head. Pansexual being, I'm attracted to everything and every type and every kind. If a nine-year-old can determine their own gender and determines their own sexual attractions, for what reason can you argue that they cannot engage in sexuality itself? You're telling me they have the maturity and the ability to make the, the distinction of their own gender and to decide who are they attracted to. You're treating children like adults in that way. This comes in part from the bill I already, the bill in Florida I talked about about a month back debunking the don't say gay propaganda coming from some circles. And I said then, it's, it's creepy. It's creepy that some folks want to talk to children about sexuality. And those that do want the right to do it, I am asking, why do... What, what's the answer to that question about whether or not they can consent... 
if you can consent at 9 and 10 years old and 11 years old, if you can consent to surgeries, puberty blockers, of course you could consent to act, an act of sexuality. What is the distinction? I mean, I know where I stand. There, because there is no distinction, no child can, of their own cognizance and volition, submit themselves to the process of degendering and becoming some other sex. I, I know there was, there was a TED Talk uh, two years ago, maybe, of a guy who says he is attracted to children. He, says it, he gets it on a stage and says it out loud. I'm attracted to children. And there needs to stop being such, um, s- such a stigma around me because I don't act on it. And we need, to be, we need people who are attracted to children to be able to say that they are and find the support they need. So we got to take the stigma out of saying you are attracted to children so that we can get help and protect kids. I just didn't think we'd get here, guys. I know we start heavy today, and I, I see our sexual ethic continuing to slip, slide down that slope. And I, I'm admittedly saddened, and I'm not panicked, because we, we are not the people of panic. But there there is that feeling of, well, what do, you, what do you want me to do, man? Yeah, the culture is mad. The culture is dark. This, our slippery slope of sexuality has now led some folks to sexualizing children. What is there to do? Well, one, prayer is powerful. Pray for your countrymen. Did you hear what I just said? I didn't say pray for your country. I said pray for your countrymen. These are our dark days. Pray that there'd be awakening. Pray that the Holy Spirit would enliven people to the truth of the gospel. You can pray. You can, in whatever capacity you are able, speak the actual message of the gospel. You can be faithful to that which is true. You can identify sin when you see it and say it out loud, even when it is quite uncomfortable when in a culture that really wants to say nothing is wrong. It's incredible that's become our our chief ethic about our chief morality is that when it comes to sexuality, no one can say anything. No matter what you're attracted to, whatever thing you make up, you can make up another another gender today, and it'll be the 95th one, and we're all supposed to affirm it and say that is the case, and if you don't affirm what I said about me sexually, that is the the one discrimination that you cannot commit. I think of the... There's another another step we can take. Of the much more beautiful picture that our scriptures offer us. Humans made in the image of God. Enlivened to love each other, support each other. To be generous. To create art and movies and music. To, to use our physical bodies to go travel and see majestic things. And in this culture, that glorious picture of the image of God on humanity has become so debased that the centerpiece of who we have become as a people or are becoming as a people is what type of genitals you're attracted to. That is the basest, most barbaric way to see a human. And that's where we've gotten. So, pray, speak, be faithful, be mindful, 
of your surroundings, your internet feeds. I know it's a heavy way to start, guys, but it's something that I see. It's something that I am seeing. I think you're seeing it too. A a progressive sexualization of children that I never thought would be the end of our slippery slope. I thought it would be animalistic, but it seems that it's actually going to be children, and we need to be mindful and prayerful. When we come back, what I want to do first is correct a phrase that's always gotten on my nerves. I've always I've always been annoyed when someone said that a position I took was going to be found to be on the wrong side of history. I have a new response I want to give you to, uh, for that. I also want to explain why the governor of Florida is winning so often and what those prospects are. There's a very specific reason that we can actually learn from, all of us can learn from, no matter what side you're on, on why he's winning. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts and right here on his radio talk. I heard it recently on a clip on YouTube. I was watching as two folks who disagree on a given topic, one of them said to the other, you're going to be on the wrong side of history. And all of my alarm bells for stupid argumentation went off. I want to tell you how I would respond to that in a moment. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Would love to connect with you there. What they usually mean when they say you're going to be on the wrong side of history is eventually more people will agree with me than agree with you. Sure. Okay, that's true. Eventually, I mean, if it doesn't have to be true that darkness must win out. But in the case of a, a deteriorating people, yeah, let's let's say it's the sexuality issue we just covered. Yeah, sure. More people will eventually agree with you that homosexuality is not a, a sinful act. Okay, that doesn't change what's true or what's not. M- most football fans think Tom Brady's the best player who ever played the game. Yeah, I think they're wrong. And yeah, there's a lot of people who agree with me that objective truth isn't determined by how many people believe it. A truth is outside of all of us. It is a thing that none of us can actually create. We can only find it. We can discover truth because truth is just sitting out there on its own. It's God's revealed order, and we go find whatever the truth is. So it doesn't actually matter if we're on the wrong side of history books that pagan degenerate people write. But I just... Did, I, bit, I did start thinking about this. There really is a wrong side of history, and I think, I think I want to start saying it as kindly as I can to those who say it to me. Because that person is thinking about history bound by time. They're thinking about history in a very materialistic way. That their worldview and ideas will win out over mine. But as I continue my eschatological, so that's your your view of end times, as I continue my eschatological development, it's starting to feel so real to me that there will be a wrong side of history. And it will be everyone opposite King Jesus. In a very physical, real, like it, it's, starting to, it's starting to me to feel very tangible. There are those that will be on his side, not because he was not on their side, but out of submission, we, like me, rebels, rebels against his kingdom, were conquered by his goodness and kindness and come to the side of the king who will conquer all of the stuff that we are talking about. Those, stand, those that continue to stand against Jesus and his kingdom, 
his marriage ethic, his sexual ethic, his generosity ethic, his financial ethic. Those that stand in rebellion and his sin, they will be conquered and crushed. And you might say, hey, Cor, that sounds like you're glorying in the crushing of people forever because of their sin. Uh, yeah, I think I'm glorying at justice. I can't remember where in the Revelation. Oh, that might not be in the Revelation. Yeah, I'll have to find it. I, I wish, I, usually I'm, I'm better on the spot of knowing where things are in the Bible. There is a spot where it either seems the saints, or maybe it's the angels in eternity, are giving God glory for raining down judgment on the wicked. So they're glorifying him as human beings who did rebel against him, had the opportunity not to rebel against him. They're being judged for their wickedness. And so I don't mind saying back to somebody now, hey, I know what you mean, that in a physical space for some hundred years or maybe maybe thousands of years still, there will be people who think I was wrong and think you were right. But what I am telling you is that an eternal king is coming. He's going to crush you unless you submit to him and stop rebelling. And the real history that's coming to this earth, I will be on the right side of it. I thought about that paradigm in two groups of people. One is the, the fake Christian or the charlatan. I don't just mean the false convert, because here's a sad reality. There are some false converts out there who do a lot of all the... Like, do all the right things. Show up to all the stuff they're supposed to show up to. They don't go to the places they're not supposed to. They follow all the good Christian uh, rules that we set up. And they are unregenerate. I think of that most terrifying part of the Bible where there's folks that come to Jesus and say, hey, we, he says, there will be people that come to me in the last days and say, hey, we, we did miracles in your name. And he looks at them and says, I, I never knew you. So they did all the motions and had a lot of the right look and behaviors, but they were never regenerate. That's one type of fake Christian. But I mean, like we've seen, we are seeing what's happening with Hillsong Church. We have seen in the last decade just some of the unraveling of men who have led folks astray. They're on the wrong side of history. There's a judgment coming for them. But there is also, listen. I may not be comfortable talking about this, but I'm going to say true things when they come up. It's not super comfortable to say the unbelievers in this world, your unbelieving neighbors, they're on the wrong side of history. Jesus is going to come to judge them if if they are not followers of him. And that should only then motivate us to be people who do speak gospel truths to folks. Because I don't want them on the wrong side of history. I want them standing with King Jesus victorious over the rebels against his kingdom. So, all right, I heard the phrase, and it made me think. I It's another way that my mind has changed over time, thinking more eternally, that yes, that person's probably right. On the wrong side of temporal history, that's me, but I am on the right side of eternal history, not by any goodness of myself, but because the Lord has been good to reveal himself to me. All right, here we go. Continuing on church stuff. Every year the group called Faith, Faith, I uh, forgot the name of this company. Actually, I think we even use, Faith Life, Faith Life. I think we use them at Beachwood for something. It might be our production software, like to put up videos and uh, like slides so people can sing the lyrics of songs. Faith Life's a 
really large Christian organization that does a lot of different things. But every year they put out a report that I love, and I think I brought this report to you the last two years in a row once I found out about it started looking into it. If you don't know this already, when you're going to do songs that other people own, you're in church, so you're going to do a Chris Tomlin song. If you do it in a church of a certain size, I think it is, there's certain rules around this, you're supposed to report it, and I think people pay for it. Like you pay in to some service for having been able to use the song. You're supposed to put on the on the screen credit for the song. But then also Faith Life has thousands of churches that just report to them every week. Here are the songs we did. This is part of their research arm. And for that matter, some of Faith Life's software, it's live. And so they can go see, hey, for all the churches that we have control of this week, what songs did they upload to their software that they're obviously going to put on their screens for their people to sing? So Faith Life studied 750,000 church services in 2021. Got all the data to see what songs were most popular. And then they added this year about 750,000 services of, uh, of preachers and pastors who were uh, on purpose putting their, submitting their data on what they were preaching on, topics or texts. And that's what I want to share with you. Get a little glimpse at the state of the American church by what we're doing in church when we get there. So here we go. The top 10 songs played in churches in 2021, for, or at least across these 75,000 services, and I suspect they are representative of the wider brand. Number 10, I love this, In Christ Alone, one of the few really theologically robust songs that's been written in the last 30, I think it's 30 years now for uh, In Christ Alone, maybe 20 years. That's by, uh, I think, the Gettys, probably. But uh, if, you, if you don't know In Christ Alone, you should YouTube it right now. Great lyrically. Number nine is from Elevation Worship. I will subtract my commentary about that source, that band. Um, something called Graves in the Gardens. I don't know what that is, uh, but it came out in 2019. Uh, Hillsong Worship is number eight with What a Beautiful Name. Now, we do, at Beachwood, we do What a Beautiful Name. With some regularity, I guess. We switched a lyric out because we found it to be imprecise. The second verse begins with, You didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. We changed that to, In sovereign grace, he came to save us. Uh, Jesus, you brought heaven down. So, um, anyway, that not a, not a bad. Uh, there's some Not a bad one. There's some theological truth in that one. Uh, I can't believe this is still at number seven. This is Amazing Grace by Phil Wickham is up there. Chris Tomlin comes in at number six. How about this from like, I don't know, 20 years ago? 10,000 Reasons by Matt Redman up there at number five. And now here we are in the top five. Here we go. Number four is called The Goodness of God. It struck me how few of these songs I have ever heard. So now that we're in the top five, let's just take a look lyrically at what our people are singing at large. From the goodness of God, Bethel music, here's the first verse and chorus. I love you, Lord, for your, your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in your hands from the moment that I wake up until I lay my head. Oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. And all my life you have been faithful. All my life you've been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I sing of the goodness of God. 
Certainly not bad. I would I would not mind having that song, I don't think, in our rotation. I have a point I want to make here. That's a certain type of song. It's very vertical. It's worshipful. It sounds like some of the Psalms. Lord, you are these things to me. You have done these things for me. It is a good, it's it's a good one. Now back to the list. It's uh, Number three is Great Are You, Lord. I pulled up those lyrics for you. I actually have heard of this one. It goes like this. You give life. You are love. You bring light into the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. Great are you, Lord. And then I actually love this chorus. It's your breath in our lungs. I love that. Every breath we breathe belongs to the Lord. It's his air, and we just get to breathe it. The chorus goes, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour it our praise. We pour it our praise to you only. Now, a good, another good one. I think it's those are true, uh, true sentiments, just like the other one, ascribing our need for the Lord and how good He is to us. Number two is Waymaker. You're probably familiar with Waymaker. Um, when you get lost, He's a He's a Waymaker. Uh, when you are, it's it's the things that the Lord is when we are in bad situations. And then number one, the number one played song across churches in the United States in 2021, was called Build My Life. And another one, I just admit, never heard of it in my life. And so I went to look up the lyrics, and it goes like this. Uh, worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy, worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you, we live for you. Jesus, the name of every name. Jesus, the only one who could ever save. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you, we live for you. Now, any anything bad or theologically wrong with those top four songs? Build my life, way maker, greater you, Lord, and goodness of God. No, I actually don't think, I, I, I might need to listen to them and make sure, but I, I would ask this, don't they sound similar if you have those as the most commonly sung songs, they're coming up often, they're often played in the same services, and you're getting one genre of worship. It's not a bad one. It's a very vertical thing. Lord, this is what you mean to me and what you've done for me. That's good. It just leaves this. There's other genres of worship. For so long in human history, we use songs as the devices to teach things. You likely learn the alphabet by singing your ABCs, the alphabet song. You know lots of things just through song that your head, your, is it hip bone connected to the, I don't know, leg bone or whatever it is, whatever that song was. We learn a lot through song is my point. A lot of us know how a bill becomes law because of that song. And so all, all I'm encouraging here is I'm, I'm not saying don't play vertical songs. I am saying we need some balance in the church. Basically, the top nine, the top nine are, are I hate to say love songs to Jesus because that sounds demeaning. So I don't mean that. I just mean it's it's pouring out affection. It's very emotive. It's just important to also pepper in, and I, I wouldn't say pepper in, I, I lean towards this other genre of worship song, one where it teaches theology, that should be the standard. And then we also do these vertical ones. Both are important. But 
I think it's important that we actually learn things like, oh, I should have prepared this. Uh, something like, I can't think of a hint. Oh, here's one. Uh, how's that go? Riches I heed not. Uh, riches, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou art mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only are first in my heart. You're the high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. There's some teaching in that. It's worship, but there's also some information. Uh, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. So take my heart, take and seal it for your courts above. Yeah, there's worship. There's also some information there about me and the some of the problems, that my, my own natural inclinations. The, the one that comes to mind always for me the most in this is Before the Throne, where it's, uh, let's just skip to second verse. Uh, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there. He who made an end to all my sin. Now here's the big one. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, he is satisfied to look on him, Jesus, but to pardon me. That's the gospel in a song. That's actually, that's the, if you go through the, all three verses of Before the Throne, you are getting, uh, like, a, not seminary level, uh, not, not seminary level education, but you're getting the core biblical truths. I'll only do one more of these. Uh, Second verse of it is well is oh how does that thing start? My sin, oh the bliss of this wonderful thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. It's nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. There's actually the first verse of that song is even more theologically rich, probably, where it says, uh, Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has uh, sent his own son for my soul, or however that finishes. I'm not, so listen to me. I'm not downgrading the idea of worship songs. I'm just saying we need both. And the old hymns taught us something. There was information we were supposed to learn about ourselves and our God. I mean, you get into things like holy, 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 uh, all creatures of our God and King. Not, not songs that I dig a ton, but they are theologically rich. Uh, now they're all coming back to me. How great thou art. Great is thy faithfulness. There's just a lot of information in those. So anyway, all right. So that's my song point. My song point is right now in the church, it appears we have a lot of, hey, Jesus, we love you songs, but not a ton of using our songs to teach people information that they need to know. And that's a really important part of the church. Next on preaching, they were able to study 91,000 sermons. 91,000 sermons were submitted um, or published all through Logos, Logos software, through the Proclaim Church presentation, also something called faithlife.com. So they were able to get to, what was that? 91,000 sermons. The most used, uh, uh, here's how this works. It works like this in the podcasting world too, where you got to put on tags, keywords, so that you're more likely to show, show up in searches. And the most common keywords were the same that they have been apparently for decades, that the top ones were God, Jesus, love, power, faith, and glory. Those six words are always the top. But here are some trends. In 2021, the words eschatology were had a six times increase. So the 
the church apparently got very interested in 2021 about the end of all things, you know, including us at Beachwood. We've been going through Revelation. I've been it's been an incredible series. Uh, grace, the word grace showed up for four times more popular, uh, and then it's these are the other top ten that sermons were about: creation, philosophy, revival, cults, compromise, persecution, and hospitality. I'm surprised persecution wasn't higher. To me, the thing to be preaching right now is things like Revelation and then First Peter. First Peter is a book written to Christians who weren't hated yet. They were just really weird. And it was moving towards the culture saying, no, you're not just weird. We don't like you. You're bad people. Your ethics aren't right. Um, all right, and then I want to give you the top uh, scriptures preached. The number... The number one, they, they say apparently that these are always the, the number one. So John 3.16, Matthew 28, Ephesians 2.8. I believe that's the, uh, by, by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God so that no man would boast. Um, Acts 1.8 and John 1.1. 1, 1. Those are apparently always the top five. Now, did you hear that? It's in John, Matthew, Ephesians, Acts, another one in John, Gospel of John. We're not getting much Old Testament, are we? And in the top 10, there was no passage in the top 10 that came from the Old Testament. That tells us something. Heck, there's one very, very popular preacher. What, probably the, he's the second most downloaded pastor in the country. Craig Rochelle is one, and Andy Stanley is two. And Andy Stanley talks about unhitching the whole te- Old Testament, like we don't need it anymore. All right, final stat for me. This I am saying there that tells me. We do need more Old Testament. You, know, you don't really truly understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old. You can't understand the, the the revelation of Jesus Christ unless you know all the pictures that they're painting of Old Testament events. As I started teaching and preaching through the Gospel of Mark, it became really clear really quick that if you don't know what's going on in the Old Testament with pictures about the Passover and the plagues, if you don't know all the pictures of the Old Testament, you're not really reading the Gospels. We need training and teaching in Old Testament books. The number one Old Testament book preached this year, or last year, was Psalms. Number two was Genesis. And number three was Isaiah. The number one verse in the Old Testament preached was Isaiah 9-6, which is, I believe, the Christmas verse. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. So, of course, it ended up in the top three. But the top books preached from in the United, in the United States, I just lost the chart. I just had it scrolling. Give me one second. I'm such a professional on radio. Uh, number one was Matthew. Number two was the Gospel of John. And then Psalms actually does come in three. And four is Romans. Luke is five. Ephesians is six. Hebrews is seven. So we apparently get a lot of epistles. That's good. There's good theology in all those. I just think for our purposes, and as you lead churches, I know I have quite a few church leaders that listen. Let's not unhitch that Old Testament. Let's root ourselves in it. We don't really properly understand the new without the old. All right, I'm finished geeking out on the stats around what churches are doing. When we return, I'll see what we'll do. Oh, yeah, I want to tell you why I think Ron DeSantis is winning so often and dominating uh, the political world in a lot of ways. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back in for the final segment of the Corey Truax Show right here, wherever you find your podcast, which I'm finding more and more of you. It's Spotify. Still, Apple is my most number one listened to 
a medium, but Spotify is catching up quickly. Oh, also this. Guys, this hurt my feelings. I'm just kidding. I don't have feelings. But like one quarter of my typical listening audience listened to the episode that opened up about NFTs and cryptos. We're talking, I think that number is at like 600 right now. Like 600 people have streamed it. They saw the title. <laughs> like, I figured out what NFTs are. Should Christians care? Let's talk about cryptocurrency. And over a thousand people went, eh, we'll skip it. I don't care. I don't care about the NFTs. So, fine. Welcome back then. And I'm, if you run out of things to listen to, you should go back and listen to that episode. Here we go. I noticed recently that Ron DeSantis just seems to be winning a lot in Florida. Not just getting legislation passed. That's one thing to measure for a primary that could be coming up that could include both the former president, most most recent former president, and Ron DeSantis. There is an argument here that one of them actually does accomplish things through a legislature, actually gets stuff accomplished that many conservative people want to see get accomplished. The other one just makes people mad. And they're the people that you want to be mad because you hate their guts and you think they're ruining the country and you're, you like it when they're sad. You drink their tears. But one of them accomplishes things and the other just gets everyone riled up. So he's winning on that front. In polling data, it shows that if there isn't a run from the former president of the United States, he will run away with the nomination. That's a, that seems to be what it is. And when you poll him against prominent par- figures from the opposing party... He beats all of them but Michelle Obama. So he's winning a lot. And so the question becomes, why? That's not typical. It's not typical when all of the forces of a culture are arrayed against you, especially like this media, you usually don't win. So why is he winning? And I came up with a theory. A lot of life is about picking your battles. It's choosing what you want to fight over. I recall back playing basketball when I played a lot in my youth and into my early 20s. It was the case that I was a, I was a pretty good defender, but not a not a great ball handler, decent shooter, and I noticed because of that, I often was guarded by the other team's worst player. And because of that, I did okay. I got to be matched up with, I got to choose my opponent. And, and, well, I didn't choose it, but in, in some way I got to choose my opponent. I remember on, on a team I, I was on, that was part of our coach's strategy when a team played man-to-man against us. They, Whoever was being guarded by the worst player on the other team, go set a pick on, uh, go set a pick on whoever's guarding our best player so that he can get a switch. And so now our best player can play against their worst, play, their, their worst player. There's strategy in life on some other things about when you choose to argue and what to, what to argue over. Life is often about choosing your battlegrounds. I think DeSantis is choosing all the right battles. I'll say something positive about Barack Obama on this. He also had this skill. He would choose his enemies. He would choose his opponents. For example... A big theme of the Obama administration was hatred of rich and wealthy people. That's a very popular stance to take. People are resentful. People are jealous. And so he got to go out and go after rich people. And so you're saying to your opponent, I dare you. I dare you to defend them. I dare you to go on TV and talk into microphones and defend the wealthy. 
defend the tax system we're in. Go, go do it. I dare you. And he got to choose his battle, choose his opponent, and it did okay for him. That is what Ron DeSantis is doing. He is picking the, the most popular positions, like, I don't think we should talk to five to nine-year-olds about gay sex. I don't think we should talk to five to nine-year-olds about sexuality at all. And his opponents, because they're blinded by rage and hatred, are getting up and screaming and slobbering, yes, we will. We, I demand to talk to children about sex. And DeSantis is crushing them. Why? Because he chose the battle. He, his opponents are so crazy, he's willing to just say, yeah, you, wait, you want to take that position? I found out that I could take any position and you'll just take the opposite of mine? Okay, how about this one? I choose with that we don't tell all the white kids that they were born racist. That's what I choose. <laughs> do you want to argue against it? Okay, please do. Go, go do that. It's going to be awesome if you do that. He keeps choosing all the right opponents. And there's there, his opponents are stuck in this cycle. It was recently covered in, oh man, New York Times Magazine maybe? There was an editorial that said, a lot of folks on the left have fall, fallen into a Fox News trap where they say, um, if Fox News covers it, as a negative, all we know is they're lying and it's positive, or it's not a problem at all. That's another one. Uh, DeSantis chose some crime bills, some, uh, what's it called, bail reform, and who we actually put in jail and who we don't. And so right now, the American people actually do care about crime. It's a it, Crime rates are raising in almost every category, and folks are, folks are nervous. Folks are scared. Like I, I thought about this the other day. We had this tragic shooting in the upstate, Tanglewood Middle School. Heart-rending, heart-breaking event. And then it, it, it hit me that in my inbox, in one of the emails I get for news, it had like three other shootings in it. They were far-flung. One was, the, one was the one out in Sacramento. There was another small shooting a couple other places. And so we have this nationalized news infrastructure where we find out every single bad thing that happens. Not just the one close to us. And so our perception of the crime problem is even worse than it actually is. We actually have a crime increase. It's a problem. It's not as bad as it seems like it is in media. But as people are concerned about it, DeSantis steps up and says, yeah, I'm going to argue that criminals should stay in jail longer and we should give police some resources to do it. And a year ago, or 2020, that was a very unpopular prospect. But right now, it's very popular. And so then DeSantis looks over at his opponents and says, would you like to argue differently? And they keep doing it. They they keep coming up and saying, I want to release prisoners, teach sex to eight-year-olds, and do the critical race theory thing. I, I demand to do it. And he just keeps standing over there smiling and winning. Heck, the, the guy seems to be winning over Disney. They're the most powerful media conglomerate in the history of humanity. And he seems to be getting a slight win over them as well. So while that is in the news, and those are the, those are the personalities and the events, there is something for you to take out of that. Pick your battles. Maybe that's at work. Maybe that's, at, maybe that's in your marriage, your home. But pick your battles. Your, 
most likely to get wins when you get to choose your opponent. Let's do this one. Seven years ago, I, I saw, I have a feature, we all have it on Facebook, Facebook Memories. And I, I saw this week that I had a memory of me saying seven years ago that the that tolerance has melted away. If, if you recall the years I grew up, so take me to the late 90s through the Bush years, what we were being told culturally by the cultural left was we just want tolerance. We, we don't want to be treated unfairly. or we, we just want you to tolerate us. You never have to approve. You never have to endorse. But we're preaching tolerance. And I said seven years ago, that's over. Now it's totalitarian. You can't just tolerate that I am how I am. I will impose it upon you. For example, tolerance would be you behave in the way you want as long as it's legal. What we have now is I, I, my name is now different. I'm going to tell you will call me this fake name. You will break the rules of grammar and you will call me these pronouns. You will do what I say. It's become authoritarian. I was saying it seven years ago. Heck, that's another one. This connects really well with the DeSantis thing. This, these folks who were once just asking for tolerance are now saying, no, my, my male, biological male, my male child is going to compete against the girls. He's going to run in that track. He's, or I guess they would say she. That is going to swim in that pool against the ladies. That's how it's going to be, period, bottom line. You must, you must acquiesce to it. Not just tolerate someone's existence and be nice and kind. No, you will do what we say. You can use all those ones, I, those other ones I just did. Like the the attitude is, we will teach your kids whatever we want about race and sexuality, and you can stay out of it. Don't just tolerate. We don't want you to just tolerate that we think differently than you. That, that you want to. We don't want you just to tolerate that lots of different positions exist, and so maybe we should have some neutral spaces like schools where we don't do big partisan things. No, I don't want tolerance in neutral spaces. I'm going to teach your kid whatever I want about race and sexuality. You can get over it. Tolerance melted into totalitarianism. The one I've already mentioned. You will affirm my name, my pronouns. At this point as well, you think about the Christians who are getting caught up in gay wedding situations. It's not just tolerate the existence of this relationship. You will take the pictures of this wedding. You are going to bake me the cake. You are absolutely going to make those flower arrangements. And if you try not to, we'll ruin your life. We'll destroy you. And we'll do it with a smile on our face. We'll be happy that we've destroyed your life. I have illustrated illustrated it to you many times as the, the coexist sticker going away. So that should, that should be a, a game we play as the Corey Truax Show community. The next time you see a coexist sticker on a car, take a picture, send it to me. I don't know if, if you're the first one to do it, if I, come up, I might come up with some kind of prize or something. Because they're gone. That's not, that's not the ethic anymore. It's you do what I say, period, bottom line, or we'll wreck your life and we'll have fun doing it. Uh, should I say this? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say it. There's someone I know personally. We're not really friends anymore. We were great friends well over 10 years ago. Grew up 
like I did in, in a lot of ways, certainly walked away from the faith and I think went through a very antagonistic period against the faith and it's kind of just landed on some kind of neutrality and not care anymore. But some of the times where he was antagonistic, there was seemingly an attitude of what I just said. You bake the cake, make the flowers, take the periods, take the pictures of the marriage and shut up. Your sexual ethic is wrong and you'll be made to behave like us. And I, I have this thought that if things don't turn around, and they can, by the way, to the power of the gospel, they can turn around. That in this culture, it could actually end up being someone we know. Some friend we have will be the one to turn you in for thought crimes, as George Orwell in 1984 would have said it. Someone you know might be the one that actually ends up as a cop, and they, they put the cuffs on you because you are saying in public, men are men, women are women, marriage is the union between one man and one woman, sex is for the union between one man and one woman, and no other context is it okay. And God is coming to judge all those that have broken his laws. That it could be people we know that end up turning on us because that's what happens with tolerance melting into totalitarianism. Lies don't like to be challenged. You ever notice that? The truth doesn't, doesn't mind it. When you're telling the truth, you don't mind if people ask extra questions and clarifying questions. They're just fine with it. People get nervous. They get cagey. They get annoyed when you start asking questions of a lie they told because they know you're getting close. And as we tell the truth out in a very dark culture, they're going to get annoyed, but we shall not grow weary in well-doing. That's the final call for the week. Let's go say the right, let's go say the true things, do the good things, and let's do them faithfully despite the consequence. Do not grow weary. Friends, I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.